Hey friends, welcome to Happy Tears! I'm Brandon. And I'm Nick, and this is Happy Tears, a podcast where two sensitive boys discuss the art that they love so much so that it often brings them to tears. Today on the podcast, the new film from director Taika Waititi called Jojo Rabbit about a young boy in Nazi Germany whose imaginary friend is named Adolf Hitler. As well as a new album from acclaimed British artist Michael Kiwanuka entitled Kiwanuka. A retro soul cool album, which is a new, uh, somewhat of a new sound from this guy. So excited to dive in and this is Happy Tears. Okay, we're back with another episode, which means it's time for recommendations. Brandon. Yeah, so uh, I've been sick for a week, and that was no fun. So you don't recommend that? (laughs) Zero stars. (laughs) I'm so glad I was about to go into stars also. Maybe a little bit higher because you get some time to catch up on, you know, the media you miss, so so half half a star. star. Yeah, I, I caught up on a show I've been wanting to watch. I've had my uh, good friend Aaron has pressured me to watch Halton Catch Fire, the uh, AMC show. It kind of got pretty low TV ratings. Uh, the, I think the first season was like early on, had high ratings and might have dropped throughout. But it's a show that I think the first season is pretty uneven, although very. I still think it's good and it mainly just has parts that were promising made me excited for future seasons and kind of the whole time people didn't know like they were surprised that it got renewed every time they were like (laughs) i don't think it's gonna get just because of the drop in ratings and pretty unknown and every time it did and so there's four seasons i think every season gets better the fourth is i think incredible wow um i'm surprised there are four seasons yeah it's one of the best shows i think i've seen lots of happy tears some of the best characters i think i've like character arcs that I've ever seen. Wow. Just tore me up at the end. Man. Um, Very good, though. I refused to watch that show because I think the name is dumb. Yeah, so that's... I heard a lot of people say that. The show is, you know, it takes place um, in the 80s and early 90s, and it's a show... Kind of bridges the gap between Mad Men in Silicon Valley. Um, oh, wow. It's all about like the tech world. Really cool soundtrack with some deep cuts in the 80s and stuff too. Definitely work your way past the first season because like I said, it's it's uneven and definitely doesn't uh, showcase what they do in the later seasons. So. But it starts off a little bit more kind of in the Mad Men vein and ventures away from that. Like the focus goes on kind of different characters throughout the show. So it's like, it just does a an awesome job. Yeah, the finale is great. It wraps up like better than most shows I've ever seen. Wow, that's say that was a pretty good pitch. I might, yeah, I mean, I, I'll put it on the list. I have a right. long list of TV that I've never watched, so it should be on there. Then my other one is just a song called "Viral" by Moses Sumney. Um, I've liked a lot of his previous work. I think this is a song that has it's like no other I've heard before. It has really cool instrumentation and particularly the music video is incredible what style of music does he play um it's another one in like the kind of art pop i I would compare some of it to like some of the fka twigs kind of stuff but maybe a little um yeah i don't know it's kind of hard to explain like last time i saw him he he toured with james blake so i'd say it's in that field for sure cool r&b pop realm 
Well, that's very exciting. Yeah, it's a good good track. Especially because I've listened to no new music in the last basically two weeks. Check out the, the music video for it. I think okay. you'll, you'll dig it. It has some cool, really cool movement and dancing in it. So I have not been sick. I have been traveling for the last week and a half, basically. Yeah. I was in Italy. Um, five stars. Five stars. <laughs> five stars. Uh, Florence was my favorite. Rome was great, too. And then I, I had a gig in Atlanta Sunday. And so um, lots of time on planes in the last week and a half. So I was able to catch up with a lot of the movies that are on my list that I haven't shared with anybody. Nice. <laughs> of, of movies I'm trying to catch up with of this last decade. Yeah. Some movies, and I will be very brief on, on all of these, some movies that I've watched recently are Jackie, uh, Francis Ha. Uh, I saw Knives Out the other night. Correct. Without you, because you were a sick boy. Yep. What else did I say that I've watched? 12 Years a Slave. I saw 12 Years a Slave. That's it. Oh, and I watched Parasite again. Yeah. Um, and I've caught up with all of Chernobyl. So I was blown away by Jackie. It is in my top 10 of the decade for sure. I, wow. I was. You said Steve Jobs you caught up on as well. I, oh, yeah, and I saw Steve Jobs just last night. A lot of happy tears on, on the plane while watching Jackie. Just Happy tears I, on a plane, dude. Happy tears on a plane. <laughs> throwing it back a couple episodes. Blown away by how, how immersive that film is. The score is so good. The acting is incredible, and just like the the way they told the story about this woman in the worst week of her life, right? You know, it's about Jackie O the week after uh, JFK gets assassinated, and the range of emotion that she displays from being kind of broken and brokenhearted and devastated to resolute and like making demands about how his funeral needs to be and everything in between. She Natalie Portman just does such a great job of displaying all the different sides of, of this woman in a trying time. It was just incredible. Um, Francis Ha, I had tried to watch it before. I, I think I finished it, so I think I'd seen it before and just wasn't that into it. Second viewing was a lot better once I got past some of the cringy, cringiness of it. I think anytime a character reminds me of me in any way, I kind of dislike that character. <laughs> um, and so that's that was the hurdle I had to get past with Francis Ha, but that's a nice movie. Female friendship. Seems nice. I'll never know. <laughs> Um, and Steve Jobs was good, and Knives Out was pretty good, and I think we're going to talk about that in the near future, so I will uh, hold off. You got some news, don't you? Yeah. Let's talk some news. Good old news. Brief news brief. On Friday, which is Black Friday, Record Store Day has kind of their like mini version, which they call the, the Black Friday edition, and so they have some limited records that they put out, and I went through the list and kind of just gathered nine of them that I thought oh, shit. Um, were pretty sweet and worth getting. Love a good listicle. So I'm just going to roll through those real quick. Do it. Um, and it's a good way to go and support your local record store. Uh, Miles Davis, Miles in Tokyo is a 1964 recording. Sounded really cool. JB's, More Mess on My Thing is a... Uh, That's a cool name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've got some JB's Record Store Day uh, recordings and they're always great. Uh, it's James Brown's band and it's just super funky. Bootsy Collins is on there. Uh, worth getting. Uh, Bill Evans also had several of his Record Store Day releases, but this one's live at Top of the Gate, and the sound is pretty amazing on on this one, just of the, the sound engineering. It's a live show with his uh, the Bill Evans trio. 
I love live recordings like that, especially like jazz recordings or, or even like Towns Van Zandt's uh, Live at the Old Quarter, when you get a little bit of the uh, the audience sound in there and it just sounds, the atmosphere is always cool on those. Yeah. Um, Aretha Franklin, Atlantic Singles of 1968. Uh, I think those are like seven inches, but um, they, all, they sounded great. Uh, Lizzo's Coconut Oil EP is getting released, and I think that will be a very popular one. Jazz Dispensary, The Dank Defunk Blend. These are like compilation albums. I got the one they released last year, and it was, uh, again, just super funky, like really fun music um, that sounds great. And some of these recordings haven't been available. Like they wouldn't be on Spotify and stuff. So, And they always have really cool covers on those. Raymond Scott, The Jingle Workshop, 51 to 65, which I thought was pretty fun they're like they're old jingles that's kind of cool. and the cover is pretty amazing on this one as well but yeah so like old jingles for like cigarettes and uh right and beer and all types of stuff it's, that's awesome it's fun. pearl jams mtv unplugged which is has thirteen thousand copies getting released and like most of these are between like 1500 and 2500 thirteen thousand is like crazy for record store day so right they must think this will be a very popular one which i assume it will <laughs> Uh, and then the last one I have on here is Nas's Stillmatic album, which is, I think, a pretty underrated album, but it's getting released for the first time since it was initially released. I think it's going to be on silver vinyl or something. So thought those were uh, the ones to bring up. There's several other ones that are really cool as well. So if you go and take a look, they always have like the list there of what they have, and hopefully... Uh, you get there early enough to find something you like. Excellent. Thank you for those recommendations. That was really cool. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> uh, second piece of news I had was, uh, so the Grammy nominations for 2020 came out, and Lizzo has a whopping eight nominations, and then Billie Eilish and Lil Nas X both have six. I was going to kind of go through just the main the main nominations, uh, like the, the top four and then do a little, uh, just a couple notes on, on some of them. And hopefully yeah. maybe we can have a, an episode where we kind of go through and do maybe what we would want and what we predict or something. I think that'd be a cool little exercise. Yeah, that's something, uh, I wonder if we do it maybe closer to yeah the actual award show. That's something we could even do for the Oscars too, is like a prediction and discussion kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, great idea. Love it. Thank you, sir. And I haven't really looked. I've, I've seen some of the nominations, but I haven't looked in depth, so I'm excited to hear this. Yeah, so uh, first we have the big one, Record of the Year. Uh, there's Hey Ma by Bon Iver, Bad Guy, Billie Eilish, Seven Rings, Ariana Grande, Hard Place uh, by Her, Talk by Khalid, Old Town Road, Lil Nas X, Truth Hurts by Lizzo, and Sunflower by Post Malone and Sway Lee. Album of the Year. I I by Bon Iver, Norman fucking Rockwell by Lana Del Rey, When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go, Billie Eilish, Thank You Next, Ariana Grande, I Used to Know Her by Her, Seven by Lil Nas X, which I have no idea why that's on there. It's an EP and- Oh, and, really? And not, yeah, they just should have picked something else. It's all right though. Because uh, I Love You by Lizzo and Father the Bride by Vampire Weekend. Uh, so on to Song of the Year. We have Always Remember Us This Way, Lady Gaga, Bad Guy by Billie Eilish, Bring My Flowers Now by Tanya Tucker, Hard Place by Her, Lover by Taylor Swift, uh, Norman Fucking Rockwell by Lana Del Rey, Someone You Loved, Louis Capaldi, and Truth Hurts 
by Lizzo. And then the best new artist, we have Black Pumas, which is a big surprise and pretty cool. Billie Eilish, Lil Nas X, Lizzo, Maggie Rogers, Rosalia, Tank and the Bangas, and Yola. Uh, pretty cool new artist list there. You know, something I thought I would mention is uh, Brittany Howard has a couple nominations. The best alternative music album category is pretty solid. Emily King has a nomination, which I was kind of stoked about. That's cool. We can go kind of in the lower, the more specific categories and stuff later. But the big story is, you know, the Lizzo, Billie Eilish, and Lil Nas X. We'll, we'll see who wins out of those three. They both, I think the thing was that Lizzo and Billie Eilish got, are nominated in all four of those big categories right. which is a huge deal so they both i mean obviously had huge years we'll see what goes to who early thoughts is i think lizzo's gonna take most of those mm-hmm. i think that just her explosion has just been insane whereas i think Billie eilish has kind of not not super slowly but over the last three years has been gaining traction whereas i feel like lizzo just blew up out of nowhere and I don't really have a lot of data to back that up but (laughs) that's what I'm thinking and I don't know I just I think that uh, everyone loves truth hurts I think that uh, juice is one of the best songs of the decade in terms of the songwriting I think it's just like almost a perfect pop song Mm -hmm. so I wish that was nominated for something but that's fine I'll survive (laughs) Yeah, I guess I'm just excited to see how how they play out. I mean, I like both of them, so um, it's cool. All right, well, you want to get into some Jojo Rabbit? Let's do it. Here's Marshall Jojo. You're a top man. Prepare to leave the house. Today, you boys will be involved in such activities as four games, Ah! ambush techniques, and blowing stuff up. I don't think I can do this. Was? Of course you can. comes to. When I was your age, I had an imaginary friend. Got me in so much trouble. Kids, it's time to burn some books. Yeah! You're growing up too fast. Ten-year-olds shouldn't be celebrating war and talking politics. Uh, Hitler, I wish more of our young boys had your blind fanaticism. <laughs> Did you know Jews can read each other's minds? But how would you know if you saw one? They could look just like us. So first on the docket today, comedy film from comedy filmmaker Taika Waititi of New Zealand. New Zealand. New Zealand. That's good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> New Zealand. New Zealand. No. The only thing I can do in, in that accent is it, it's the only thing that con- that will never cease to make Tess laugh is if I, if I say, Hi, Tess. Tis. Hi, Tis. Hi, Tis. <laughs> anyway, uh, director Taika Waititi. Some of his credits include The Flight of the Concords, Hunt for the Wilder People, Thor Ragnarok, and now Jojo Rabbit. Don't forget about what we do in the shadows, Nick. Which I have not ah. seen. That's a big... Uh, um, oh, let me check my list and see if that's on my, <laughs> on my <laughs> blind spots because it needs to be. It is very funny. Boop, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop. Also a little spooky at times, Nick, so... <laughs> That's how I react when anybody <laughs> says something. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about this movie. Yeah, so uh, here's the description on Letterboxd. Um, well, first it says, an anti-hate satire, which I see all over the posters. It's, it's trying to make it very clear that this is... Right, not sympathizing with Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, which, yeah, so... Um, the description is 
a World War II satire that follows a lonely German boy whose worldview is turned upside down when he discovers his single mother is hiding a young Jewish girl in their attic. Aided only by his idiotic imaginary friend, Adolf Hitler, Jojo must confront his blind nationalism. Boom. Comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Comedy. So yeah, my first interaction with Taika Waititi's work that I remember was when I saw Hunt for the Wilder People, kind of on a whim. I don't know why Tess and I chose to see it, but, uh, and we've talked about it here on the podcast in the past. Just absolutely love that movie. One of my favorites of uh, the last decade, really. And uh, it's super great. And and Thor Ragnarok is one of my favorite of the Marvel movies. Just so great. I love the kind of New Zealand style of humor. It's very dry and fast. Flight of the Concords is a great example. Just the the the, the speed and 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 uh the the wit. 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 You will like uh I well I can't say for certain, but I think you will enjoy what we do in the shadows. Well, I remember seeing this trailer or the trailer for Jojo Rabbit in several films I've watched this year and was wondering how that comedic tone was going to play out through the movie and if there was going to be enough dramatic elements. And I know that the critical reception early on at um, Toronto International Film Festival was very, it, it was polar, it was a polarizing movie and received a lot of negative reviews. And I'm not sure why, like I wasn't reading these reviews, um, but I could, you know, it's a, any satire around serious events is going to, um, going to be touchy for some. And depending on how well it's executed, it could go either way. But based on that, the trailer is very comedic. So I was wondering, you know, how they were going to pull in the dramatic elements because of how serious the content was. Just going into this, I kind of thought I had seen several negative reviews or like a, I guess like a Metacritic score of this. And, um, and then kind of coming out of it, I was pretty curious as to what all the negative feedback was for because I... Really enjoyed this. Yeah, I liked it. I didn't super love it on my first watch. I do want to go back and and see it again now that I've I've read some interviews with Taika and mm-hmm. and watched some other things. But the biggest thing that I struggled with, and we can talk about this more as we really get into it, was the tone shifts between the comedic parts and some pretty brutal depictions of war and mm-hmm. hate are stark. Right and. Uh, they made you uncomfortable, or <laughs> yeah, and and that's and that's that was the point. So so complaining about that is maybe not, <laughs> you know, it it may be just kind of baseless. But I think what I wrote on my letterbox review was like the the tone shifts were pretty tough, and it really ruined the good time I was having with those Nazis. Oh, <laughs> and so I get it, but it did like I don't know it 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 was just so much of a gut punch that it that it was just tough to take so yeah so on the first watch you don't leave especially with it being taika watiti and it being primarily a comedy i didn't leave the theater saying man that was so funny even though there were very funny points because the the undercutting of yeah we're using satire but this is actually really fucking horrible mm-hmm. was you leave it i left the theater feeling the weight of it which yeah. is i'm sure the intent yeah so I don't know. I'm just just a bummer sometimes. <laughs> you know that Holocaust just a bummer sometimes. Yeah. So the I feel like he was very careful about how he used as he should be, uh, kind of both of those elements and switching between really dramatic scenes and 
comedic scenes. And I thought, you know, with it being a sat- satire, it just, I think the satirical jokes, uh, I think really landed and particularly about how outrageous this uh, ideology was, but also how it was being, I mean, how these kids were being manipulated into uh, thinking this way. And so the movie starts out on, you're kind of introduced to these characters through this Hitler youth camp. Yeah. Well, actually the, the very beginning, it has like this Beatlemania kind of uh, scene where it's like kind of relating Hitler's, um, I guess the fanaticism towards Hitler to uh, the Beatles. Right. Uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. And then it goes into this Hitler youth camp. And I love when movies incorporate pop songs in mm-hmm. a different language. Yeah. Because I think they played I Want to Hold Your Hand in German. Yeah. And uh, that's just always a fun yeah, oh yeah, way to set a tone. Specifically, The Life Aquatic did that with mm-hmm. a bunch of David Bowie songs uh, in French. And even Crazy Rich Asians, which I watched recently had a uh, cover of Coldplay's Yellow that I think was in Chinese, maybe, which gave me happy tears just because I love that song. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I just love when, when films play with contemporary songs, pop songs, and put them in different languages. It's just a fun way to set a tone, and I like it. Agreed. And I think it was, a, I mean, it worked for uh, the context, too. For sure. Um, so. So yeah, we're at we're at Hitler Youth Camp. Yeah. So yeah, it starts introducing all these pretty uh, wacky older characters, and then all of the the kids that are kind of following these uh, camp leaders. And one of them is our main character, Johan. I think Johan. so. Johannes. 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 As he kind of feels out of place at this camp, but he's trying to put on a fighter face, and uh, we're introduced to his imaginary friend, Hitler. <laughs> Played by the director, Taika Waititi. Yep. And there's some interesting just conversation around why he kind of chose to be, uh, to play Hitler instead of uh, trying to cast someone else. And that the whole, like, he was going to make sure that he was very careful about the role, obviously, and not to put it in the hands of someone else. So if there was backlash against this, there would, there would be no, you know, backlash against whoever the actor was or... I don't know, it could change someone's career or have potential. To right. So. Well, in the interview that I listened to on a podcast, he said that the studio specifically said, we'll make this movie if you play Hitler. Like, that was a studio demands, not the right word, stipulation. I think for that, and I'm sure he, because he, he probably could have pushed back or whatever, but I, I think what you just said is also totally accurate in that he wanted to <laughs> shoulder the weight of, of yeah, that. And- well, yeah, and so the story is based off of a of a book. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an adapted screenplay, but a, with a lot more comedic elements than than the the book initially had. I think. Yeah. Um, but I think he wrote this back in like 2011, mm-hmm. maybe. And so, anyways, so we start seeing this conflict within the main character, Johannes. Um, he's living with his single mother, Scarlett Johansson, and yeah, it's interesting. His father is off at war. Um, when we don't really understand the context in which he's, or like where he is. Right. They don't really ever do a lot of explaining around it. It's just kind of hinted at and vaguely discussed. Yeah. We meet Scarlett Johansson's character after Jojo in an attempt to, what is he trying to do in that scene? He is running with a grenade and trying to act like a warrior and backfires. (laughs) Quite literally. (laughs) And he kind of blows himself up. Gets sent home from Hitler camp. Right. 
and uh, that's when we meet Scarlett Johansson, his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and since he is now home from camp and everyone else is... Go ahead. Well, it's just worth mentioning that his mom is uh, angry at the camp leader here, who's played by Sam Rockwell, uh, who's, I think, a fantastic character. And then he, yeah, and then he returns home and meets a person in the attic. A Jewish person. A Jewish person in the attic. And he is very conflicted. Yes, yeah, so due to Nazi propaganda, Hitler youth camps, and just the climate of Nazi Germany, Jojo doesn't know anything really about Jewish people. He thinks they have scales. He thinks they might have horns. There's a lot of mystical rumors <laughs> about them wanting to eat him or, or any number of, of terrible things. And so when this girl shows up, it is a uh, a discovery journey for him to right. get to know this person. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely scared at first. And I think the movie has, does a really great job at making the situation seem scary for the kid because of what he's, you know, all the lies have been, you know, shoved into his brain. Yeah. And um, yeah, all of this while there's still plenty of comedic elements that are, that are happening throughout. Uh, and then, so we kind of just grow we get to see uh, our young character, main character grow. And in relation with his mom, who seems to have um, a different outlook than most. And then with this, uh, yeah, with this new person. Yeah. I mean, early on, Jojo and his mother are walking through like the town square. And there are several times throughout the movie where we're in this environment and people are hanged. Right. So, so you get the sense that death is always around them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, earlier scene the first time we kind of encounter this there's a, a an exchange between jojo and his mother where he asks, you know what do these people do and she says what they could mm-hmm. and so you really early on get the sense that she is more sympathetic towards of course jewish people or dissenters or rebels mm-hmm. or you know whatever you want to call it yeah then perhaps the gestapo and yeah jojo is uh yeah, he has that conflict even within the family. And I think the film does a great job of showing that as well as like he has this relationship and loyalty to his mother. But if he, if, um, he were to tell anyone else about the, his mom having sympathetic feelings, then, then uh, you know, his mom can take it away. So I think it portrays that dynamic and conflict really well. But I think that's, that's a good amount of talking about the plot without getting into spoilers. Sure. What do you think worked worked well? What were some of your favorite things about this movie? I really enjoyed pretty much the entire relationship between Jojo and the young girl, Elsa? Elsa, yeah. Uh, the, the Jewish girl in the, in the attic. Their discovery of each other, the kind of game of chess they're playing with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, they. <laughs> I think the line is, we have a classic Mexican standoff. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just a regular standoff. <laughs> Oh, that's very good. And just the interplay between them and how they grow due to their relationship Mm -hmm. throughout the movie is great. Overall, I like Scarlett Johansson in the movie. I think her accent is terrible. I think, but that's true about most of the accents in this movie. And I think that that, that it's fine because it is a comedy Mm -hmm. and it is parody that it's, you know, if it's Schindler's List, then yeah, the actor, the the accent's got to (laughs) be spot on. But the relationship between Jojo and his mother was pretty touching and especially the scene where they're dancing together is very nice and yeah i love i really love scarlett johansson in this um i've never really seen this side of her before like she does some yeah there's just some acting sequences that i've just seen a new side of scarlett johansson 
the relationship between her and uh, Johannes is, I think, really special. And it's interesting, in an interview, he said, Taika Waititi said that this was a love letter to single mothers. Mm. And I just found that to be true and, the, and very touching. Like there's a specific scene where she wipes ash on her face and does this bit where she's playing his father. And that was just, a, I think, just a beautiful scene and really creative scene. There's a ton of depth in just the performance, but also the writing in that scene of like, you get a bunch of backstory about who Jojo's father is, but also about like the, just the situation and the family dynamic. Right. And all yeah. That. Yeah. It's it, a, that was really great. Well, and I love the, uh, the role of Jojo's mother because she was in many ways more of a kid than he was in spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was all about living life and experiencing it and being out there. There's a there's a scene where they're walking together. They're just walking down this street or trail and Jojo's walking on like the sidewalk essentially and his mom is the, up like on the the ledge mm-hmm. walking. Yeah. Where you know, when you think about that in a real life scenario, you'd really flip those roles. The kid would be the one climbing on the on the walls, and and the mother would just be walking. But right, uh, because she's the one that has this lust for life and and is grateful for each day. You know, right? And he's he's trying to fit this real rigid exactly uh, role of you know. It's just it's it's great. I love that too. So yeah. So for me, there were some very like early on some. I immediately just thought of Wes Anderson. It's hard not to because of Moonrise Kingdom and just the, the similarities in, in some of the uh, characters and even some of the shots and stuff. But I love and I love Moonrise Kingdom. So I love uh, I love that this movie is from the pr- perspective of uh, a child and the children around him. I really think it works because of that. You know, like the the Hitler's character in this is from the perspective of a 10 year old mind. And so it's a more effective way of showing this imaginary friend and what he envisions this kind of ridiculous Hitler character to be like. I think all the child actors are really great in this. And specifically like Johannes, he he shows like a such a range in depth for being such a young kid and the way he reacts to certain situations, you could really tell. Um, and the, the conflict is, you know, on his face of like, what do I do with all of these things that I think I know, and then I'm, I'm confronted with uh, this girl that he, you know, has these uh, difficult feelings towards. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it's, I think that is done uh, really well. And then there's some really like tense scenes in this as well. Like there's a Gestapo scene mm-hmm. that is very tense. Where Steven Merchant plays the, uh, the yeah. like leader of the, the officer. Pretty intimidating, but also there are some light, funny, you know, yeah, yeah, moments with it too. For sure. But yeah, overall, I think it's a really effective satire that Taika had to be careful. And I think he did, did a good job at that. Well, and he said, and I listened to the director's cut, the DGA podcast. Mm-hmm. He was just talking about his process in, in making a film and he screen, he does tons of screen tests mm-hmm. for his films. Like he tested over and over and over again to, to really strike that balance and, you know, find the, the equilibrium for yeah. his movies. And so, and he said it was no different for this. He, he tested it a bunch. Right. Yeah. So just overall, I really, I thought that the, the drama elements of this worked really well and those, uh, really nice balance and there are there are definite pretty striking tone shifts throughout but i i feel like they were 
pretty carefully constructed. Yes. Yeah. One one thing I did notice that is part of a trend of the last couple of years of Sam Rockwell playing hateful characters that aren't that bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, like you think about Three Billboards and then and then this like playing a racist cop in that movie but like he at the end of the of Three Billboards he's like sympathetic and then in this He's a Nazi officer. <laughs> yeah. That uh, that by the end, I mean, he does sort of. He has. Um, I think he's just not a like a one dimensional character. Like you, you learn pretty early on that he has that he's hiding something or trying to put on this sort of uh, ridiculous um, exterior. Yeah. Um, but that there's more to him and all of that. Did you um, struggle with seeing? I can't remember the actor's name, but Reek from <laughs> <laughs> from uh, uh, Game of Thrones in a new role. Is it Alf- Alfie? Something. It's Alfie. Uh, what is uh, what is outside of Reek? What's the house? Uh, we're so far from Game of Thrones now. They're the Iron. Theon. Yeah. Theon Greyjoy. Greyjoy. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Did you did you struggle seeing Theon Greyjoy outside of the Game of Thrones world? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I like it comes to mind. For sure, but he—I mean—he didn't have a—he has a, a role in this that's an important one, but he—he he doesn't have a ton of dialogue or anything. Yeah. He's just kind of a side character. Uh, but yeah, he's a pretty ridiculous character. Yeah, <laughs> I do think it's interesting that he wrote this movie in 2011, and I think it's more poignant and relatable now than ever. Right. You know, eight years later, because I don't even know if the Nazis were back in 2011, but they're back now. I know they were. I know they've always been around course, yeah. in in their little corner. But now, you know, you think of the Charlottesville, the uh, the Tiki Torch guys, mm-hmm. and 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 all that. It's interesting that he wrote this so long ago, and it's and the timing seems perfect for a movie with this message. Which is, even though Nazis can be a punchline, it's a real thing, and real real horrible things have happened and can happen if we don't stomp out hatred and and really and the hopeful unite. view that. These people, like, people don't just think this way. They are, you know... Indoctrinated. Indoctrinated somehow. They, they are thinking that way for a reason and um, have the ability to change that. And a lot of that is just with getting to know what you view as other. So, yeah, I think that that relationship between Johannes and Elsa is, is very special and, and the way that they kind of work that out and when Johannes works through that, even though he's obviously being indoctrinated from a very young age. And it's a, it's also, I don't always think about this, but it's also important to realize how, how these kids were indoctrinated and just from a, a young age were told something. And if anything else, if someone thought differently, then they could, you know, be harmed and were threatened, uh, even if it was a family member. So it's, I, I think it handles all that really well. Yeah, I agree. Um, cool. Happy tears now. Happy, Happy tears. tears moments. Um, how many do you have? I think I have about four. Not all oh. the same. Not all of the same scale, but they were all particularly um, <clears throat> memorable moments for me in the film too. Yeah. Um, I've got two. So you go ahead and start. Well, one we've already kind of talked about is that Scarlett Johansson scene where she's she's enacting his father mm-hmm. and i and i already kind of talked about it but i just think of the emotional depth and the writing everything i think worked perfectly and um i also have you know i grew up with a single mother for you know a period of time and so there was some personal stuff too that was just uh tied to a scene like that and so it was very just a very touching scene and i think both of them played played it 
beautifully. So I had, I was, I just got emotional during that one. And then there's a particular scene between Scarlett Johansson's character and Elsa that she's talking about kind of womanhood and just what that could mean to someone like Elsa in her situation. I got pretty emotional as well. Yeah, that was a great scene. And even earlier in that scene, before they got to that, bit of dialogue mm-hmm. there was a couple of lines that i just thought were really well written yeah scarlett johansson says to the girl you've lived more lives than most and she responds with i haven't lived at all and it's interesting how both of those statements are true right like mm-hmm. that girl has experienced more loss and heartbreak and and life in the negative way than than anyone her age ever should right and in another in the in a totally another sense she's living in an attic like she's not out living life right as she should be as you know a young girl a young person should mm-hmm. be enjoying the world and uh i thought that was really poignant and yeah. good writing yeah for sure um the next you know it said we call all tears happy tears on this podcast but there's a um there's a reveal of a tragedy that was just a gut punch including the shots after the the shoes yeah and so there was You'll know if you've seen it, what we're talking about. Um, that was just one of the best scenes of the year, I think, just in the way it was revealed, but also just gut-wrenching. Yeah, that's my first one, too, was, yeah. was the last time you see those shoes. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so the scenes afterwards where you, you see these, like, uh, do you know what they're called? They're made to look like eyes in the, in the particular still shots they show after that, but they're like little windows that look like eyes that are on looking this scene you get the sense that there's other people hiding that are looking down at these tragedies and obviously being terrified that it could be them um do you know what i'm talking about i don't well 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 that they were just really effective shots because the the windows look like eyeballs (laughs) because of the way they're placed in the frame and is this during during that scene or is this I think l- it's directly after that scene. Your eyes could have been too watery to see it. <laughs> but um they were all just like still images of uh of of these tiny like tiny windows at the tops of houses. Yeah. And um anyways. Man, I don't I don't remember that. I got to look out for that next time I. That and then um the last scene between Sam Rockwell's character and JoJo's character was definitely emotional and then the ending scene of this film it kind of all ties back together with some previous themes and some previous interactions with jojo and his mom and i just think it tied it all together really nicely at the end of this movie the song heroes by david bowie plays Mm -hmm. i think also in german right i don't remember that i think it was in german i've become a bigger and bigger david bowie fan in the last couple years Uh, the more i listen to his music the more i just think he was such a genius but um the first time i ever heard that song was in the movie perks of being a wallflower and uh the way it's used in that movie is just so triumphant yeah. and hopeful and and great and so i always sort of associate it with that the that song with with the feeling of that scene right and if you're using that song at the end of a movie it's usually probably a pretty hopeful ending yeah um but i'm i've gotten to the point where if you play any david bowie song in a movie i'm gonna cry so <laughs> so that that's what happened for me and and all the context around it within the movie was great poignant but i think it could have been a shit ending and you just put david bowie in and i'm, I'm weeping well so. that might be a good uh question for our audience is as 
you know, if they're an artist or a particular song that if it shows up in a film, you know you're going to be having some type of happy tears. Yeah. Or, I mean, I would even take submissions of just a specific instance where a song in a movie gave you that gut punch or gave you whatever. So if, if there's, is that okay? Sure. So it's any specific song, if you hear that, that gives you happy tears. Or if there's just one specific moment in a movie where the music specifically gave you happy tears. That's a good question. Yes. Yeah, so You're a smart guy. I'm just always thinking. <laughs> <laughs> just always thinking over here, man. I love it. Because I'm rarely thinking over here. Yeah. And so that's, that's all my happy tears. Yeah. I struggled leaving the theater just feeling bummed out by the the darker parts of the movie. Mm-hmm. I do recommend people see it, and I want to see it again. I think I'll enjoy it a lot more on the second viewing. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you really loved it right out the gate. I did, and I think that I, there's even some comedic elements that I will pick up later, because sometimes they come pretty quickly, and that's the only thing. I mean, maybe it's rewarding on repeat views this way, but there's a few things that were so quick that I don't think they, specifically comedic moments, that were harder to uh, understand or pick up on or to get the laugh. So I just, I, I want to see it again for that reason in particular, because there's <laughs> occasions where other people laughed and I just like missed the the joke or it didn't play out long enough for me to, to understand what they said. Like I didn't even under, yeah, I didn't even, you know, hear the dialogue at that point. Right. Anyways, yeah, I, I definitely want to want to see this again and I'd be happy to see it as soon as I can. And I'll say, I hope this isn't too spoilery. I thought the imaginary friend of Hitler was going to be more of a factor in the actual plot of it. Mm -hmm. And really it was more of, it turned out to be more of a, um, a lens through which we see some of, we react to some of the other scenes, like the actual narrative. For sure. And I think it is a little bit like, uh, Johannes's father is gone. And so you get a little bit of He's trying to fill in this father figure void. And then you get a little bit of his own. There's a psychological element too, where like he, his own thoughts are being portrayed through this character and this, the things he's working through as a 10 year old are, are being shown through this imaginary friend. So uh, I did think it was a really effective way and pretty ridiculous way, but it, I think it ended up, ended up working out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Jojo Rabbit is in theaters now. Where'd you see it? I saw it at Alamo Draft House. Where did I see it? You saw it at Angelica. That's right. How'd you know? Bad feeling. <laughs> Give me a hile. That was my favorite. Like, that was so funny. I, I, I'm not going to, I'll probably cut all this, but like <laughs> that opening scene was so funny. Oh, yeah. And even that, that, uh, the scene with the Gestapo and them. Right. There's <laughs> a ridiculous, there's a anatomy of a scene breakdown with a New York Times thing they do with Taika and Stephen Merchant that, oh, I, really? that I watched this morning. That really was, cool. It was pretty good. Um, yeah. Anywho, what's the other thing? Music. So our next topic of discussion is the album Kiwanuka by Michael Kiwanuka, produced by Danger Mouse. Uh, he had, this is his third album release. His first was back in 2012 and had a pretty different sound, much kind of more acoustic driven, but still had a retro vibe to it. Was this your first experience with Michael Kiwanuka? Yeah, I had heard a couple of the singles, you know, the ones that got radio play, but Otherwise, was not very familiar with the catalog, or at least the first two albums. 
Um, and so, yeah, this is my first real experience with his music and I had a good time with it. And, yeah. and from what I understand, it's his sound has evolved over the years and yeah, so cool. for sure. His last album was produced by Danger Mouse as well. Uh, and what seemed like a decent departure from his first album. And so those of you unfamiliar with Danger Mouse, he is one half of Gnarls Barkley, who I'm sure you're familiar with. And he has produced huge albums. He produced uh, Demon Days by the Gorillas, an MF Doom record that was, was really great, the Black Keys album Brothers, and the one before that too, I believe, Attack and Release. A lot of people really love his sound. He definitely has a specific sound to where he can kind of mold an artist's to his sound um, and some people like the way that uh, turns out and other times people don't and sometimes um, it can you know you can get some pretty polarizing records particularly I'm thinking of like when the Black Keys when he produced their you know Attack and Release a lot of people and and Brothers as well people didn't love how he kind of cleaned up their raw sound um, more like garage rocky sound um, kind of to his own style to make it a little more ap- approachable radio friendly but I do I think Brothers is a, a good record and a good a good balance of those those two things but I love um, that album yeah so but yeah he's notorious for that kind of sound and some people think he you know ruins some some bands and some people love I'm kind of in the camp of where I there's particular ones I think sound really great and is a cool a really cool collaboration and then others I'm just not crazy about. but. Um, and you're a pretty big Kiwanuka fan, is that correct? Yeah, I, I really liked his first album and just like singles he was putting out at that time and some live videos. He has a cool mahogany session and so, has some other live videos of that, um, that time. And he just has a really classic sounding voice, really beautiful voice. And so, yeah, it was a, was a fan from him back then. And I kind of, I wouldn't say fell off, but his second release was such a different sound. I think I liked it okay. I didn't pay attention to a ton of the production elements. I kind of just like, just kind of skimmed over it. I, there's specific songs that I like from it, but I, I haven't, um, definitely didn't dive into it as much as we'll dive into this release today, but. So what were your expectations leading up to this album or I know he's I honestly, put out singles and stuff. So. Yeah, I wasn't, I knew that an album was coming out, but I figured hey, I might check this out down the line. I didn't, I wasn't particularly excited or even like, I didn't know the release date or any of that stuff. And then uh, I saw some critical reception for it that was very high praise. And so I just became interested that way. And it wasn't even the usual, you know, music blogs and stuff that I follow. It was just happened to be like a, there's a site called album of the year that kind of is an aggregator of reviews Yeah, and also has a user review section. So just the scores from that, I was interested. They'll always like do a weekly release. Yeah, they'll show the albums that are released and then have similar to the way Metascore does. Mm-hmm. So I, I became interested for sure. And I think the cover of it is a pretty striking cover and really, really cool. So that was also, you know, interesting to me. And I did hear a couple of singles that were that were pretty great too. So so upon diving in, what'd you think? How do you overall thoughts? We, we can go deeper later, but just... Yeah, I think I really like it. I think that it does a really great job of kind of connecting old and new sounds. And I think its biggest strength is how it flows. Like it, um, not only just between tracks, but it definitely is a full, like a full album listen. And we've talked about, I mean, I really, I love that experience. I think you can pull out some of individual tracks and listen to them on their own and enjoy them as well. But just the atmosphere it has. 
I'm a huge fan of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On and kind of the atmosphere that creates. And this is similar to where you can hear kind of like it's there's some dreamy elements and there's some uh, kind of like voices and like distant conversation you can hear in the yeah. background at points. And it, yeah, I, I love I love that. And I do think the production elements flow pretty seamlessly on the on the record. So, yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, I love that this, to me, feels kind of like a 1970s cop movie or something. Uh, I think I mentioned to you, like last week when we were talking about the Trouble Man soundtrack. Yeah. Which is also Marvin Gaye, which was suggested to Captain America by by the Falcon in Winter Soldier. And that's why (laughs) I looked into that album. Oh, that's great. But just the kind of the classic soul, but also kind of upbeat vibes of it i love the uh the way the vocals are layered a lot of falsetto oohs and ahs and la la's and stuff Mm -hmm. and then uh a lot of the percussion elements are very almost tribal you know a lot of um like bongos and Mm -hmm. and things like that and uh it's cool i'm i'm really into it yeah it's like a retro soul psychedelic uh sound you know mixed with some yeah, there's definitely other elements that, like, we'll talk about on specific songs where those elements come in, but I had a really fun time listening to it. Well, should we dive in and start going through our highlight tracks? Yeah. So we always kind of start by at least acknowledging the opening track of an album, right? That's a great way to set a tone. Yep. It just so happens that I think we both highlighted this track. Yeah, I really love the first track, You Ain't the Problem. Yeah, it's a very, very catchy song. Uh, I definitely get an immediate Marvin Gaye vibe like I was talking about earlier, and then I was really just loving the production on this song. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned the kind of bongos, percussive. I mean, that's the first thing you hear, basically, along with the guitar. And then you get these, like, little hits of keys, I guess? Maybe yeah, but some it also... sort of mallet? And it reminds me of, um, like, a jackpot sound or something. Right, yeah, yeah. And then that kind of motif turns into this kind of huge guitar sound, which I think is really cool. Right. I love the, that you said, uh, like, a slot machine or jackpot. Like, <laughs> like it, I mean, it feels like Vegas in some ways, you know? Like, it's kind of, it's just big and flashy right out of the gate. Vocal delivery, like the rhythm of it, is not necessarily intuitive to me. Yeah, yeah. He like comes in on a three beat or something. It's it's just like it's not a traditional like pop song or anything like mm-hmm. that. Right out of the gate, you get the sense that he's he's gonna play around and and not necessarily go with convention throughout the entire album. What makes you blind? I hope to find who I believe in. Get back in line. I can't deny myself. Show me the feeling. You got me wrong if you don't belong Live in the trouble, don't hesitate Time heals the pain You ain't the problem And his delivery on this reminds me of like Red Hot Chili Peppers Oh yeah And when he says don't, the don't hesitate is very Chili Peppers Don't hesitate Time heals the pain but and another thing we'll talk about throughout the album, I think, um, is that the strings I think are placed really well and kind of perfectly arranged. 
Um, and the way they kind of subtly come in at the end of this track, I think, is, is really great, too. But this is kind of like a retro soul banger, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> The next one I have is track number three, I've Been Dazed. So maybe you can help me out with this on I've Been Dazed, track number three. It reminds me of another song, I think maybe from the 90s, and I'm struggling to put my finger on it. That's (laughs) that's all I can think about every time. Like, I like the song as it is, but it does remind me of something, and I can't think of it. Well, there's... So... First, I have the first note was just this album's flowing beautifully, and his voice sounds really beautiful and clear on the beginning of the song. But to me, this is like a mashup, or there's a part of it that's kind of once the choir comes in of um, Hey Jude. Yeah. And then. Yes. <laughs> and then a, a Portishead song. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the drums really. the drums are very Portishead. Maybe, is it Hey Jude that I'm thinking of? I was thinking there's there's some song with a female vocalist. And it's that, maybe, it might be the Portishead song. But m- maybe. Hey Jude, def- especially when, when they do the kind of call and response stuff. Yeah. You know, that's that's straight up Hey Jude. I don't know if that's the particular song I'm thinking. I mean, the drum, drums do sound similar, but I'm trying to remember if there's another Portishead song that... Uh, the drums sound a lot like this, but but I think Glory Box is a fine example. elements are just flow really well together almost like the song is in uh, slow motion or something yeah and then again the strings on on this i think are, are placed beautifully i really liked it uh, yeah i mean my favorite part is is the uh, kind of call and response he does with the with the choir behind him and layering that with the the chorus kind of reminds me a little bit of of Brittany Howard and the uh, like love is the answer like it's kind of uh, 13th century metal um, in terms of messaging and stuff mm-hmm. like uh, all we have is each other kind of stuff we are all brothers and sisters <laughs> uh, I really love piano joint so there's a number track number four is piano joint interlude so it kind of sets up the song piano joint uh, which is track number five. Uh, I'll kind of just touch on both since, but the track number four or the the interlude part is just very cinematic. The atmosphere is thick, um, and then these like kind of piano stabs sound really nice with this guitar in the background. That's really cool. I think it's it's kind of a slow build up, but you can see some sort of movie scene playing out with this as the um, beginning part of it. Absolutely. 
And then I think it's another flawless transition into track number five, Piano Joints. There's something about the sound where it sounds like this, it's like a lonely character, uh, but just like the kind of two chord piano stab motif reminds me a lot of How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore by Prince and like the dynamic piano playing of that Prince song, which is one of my favorite Prince songs. Um, and his vocals in that track are incredible, but it kind of reminds me of that and the percussive like uh, part of this song is really subtle like it is in that Prince song as well. This song is pretty stunning, I think. Like that this subtle percussion, it just reminds me of like a like a heartbeat. I really love the the vocals of the chorus. Something tragic about it, maybe. All I know is my old is kind of love. It's taken me from my enemies. Don't let the pressure get to me. The strings kind of sweep in. I had like an inaudible, uh, just like ah. Yeah, and then these like dry drums and bass kind of come in too, and it shifts the song. But it just reminds me, like these. I think these are just like beautifully crafted songs. They, they're patient, they don't, uh, and yeah, we talked about the, the flow of it. Break away I hope I fall in love today No more break trouble So track number seven, Living in Denial, was a highlight for me. Yeah. And I think really just... The feeling of it? It just grabs you <laughs> right from downbeat. It feels really cool. And this actually comes right after track number six, Another Human Being. There's like a it's narrative to it. Yes, yeah. It's like civil rights. Uh, it sounds like something from the radio or something. Mm -hmm. Going into living in denial, it just kind of sets the table. In my mind, it just I was thinking about the struggle of the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. and that's probably something around what the song is about. The title is Living in Denial. It makes me think about how growing up, I thought that like mostly racism had been over, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I was a privileged white kid that didn't really know. That's what I think about when, when listening to this song is like the idea that we've been living in denial, that some of these problems have been solved. I should note that I don't think we said this yet, that he's a he's a British artist. Yeah, so he's a British Ugandan and he's like that his last name is even, I think, pronounced differently in Uganda but it was a it seemed like it was a something he struggled with and think like when he was getting into music thinking how people would perceive his African last name and if it would be 
people would kind of push it away into like a world music category and he so i think he's you know struggled with how other people perceive him and even just with the you know his last name and i think some of those themes play out on this album too and why i mean it's titled kill right Kill-Nu. and that's part of why he he said in an interview that that naming the the album kiwanuka was sort of a reclaiming of himself and the perception of himself and, yeah and uh it's really cool he said that most of the songs on this album are an exploration of himself or mm-hmm. a self-expression of some sort so very um, cool yeah yeah just particular notes about the song just i like that that the kind of guitar panning i think it's more towards the beginning but it kind of gives you this like swirling feeling and then with along with those vocals I guess uh, highlighting the next song would be track number nine. And I might as well mention track number eight is like the hero intro and then track number nine is titled Hero. I think the intro does a really great job of it kind of like leads you up to a moment. It sounds like someone's, if you're thinking cinematically, like traveling to this big moment or big event. But Hero was another highlight for me. I think you might have mentioned it as one of yours, too. Yeah, I like this one. I think it just has a really cool guitar and drum sound. And very, like, 70s drums. And a pretty crazy distorted guitar solo. Yeah, I, I love that guitar riff, the lead riff. But it's another one where his, like, vocal tone and guitar blend in together in this to where it's, like... I don't know what kind of, you know, filters on his voice, but it sounds super cool together. But there's like a lot of room sound in the drums and very live sounding. This is another example of really nice strings that are not prominent in the song, but mm-hmm. they, they just kind of fill out so, the yeah, sound of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, they fill out, support it. Yeah. Very uh, almost Hendrixian guitar mm-hmm. solo. Not quite as wild, but just you know, sounds of the era. Yeah, I just want to wait for this part that I was talking about with the vocal line and yeah, the way that they're distorted. Uh, next for me is the, the next track, track number 10, Hard to Say Goodbye. It's kind of a longer track, again, but I, I love the... There's a lot of like intros and there's just a lot of patience, I think, in this album, but it kind of flies by, even though it's not a short album. Right. Um, and there are some longer intro elements, but how seamlessly it flows, I think it makes it uh, 
kind of kind of fly by. And the big uh, beginning part of the song reminds me a bit of the Epic by Kamasi Washington, uh, which is a crazy long an album that's mainly jazz, but influenced by a ton of other genres. And but the almost like spiritual nature of it um, with the those back vocals. Yeah, it's very. It feels very mystical and very uh, epic and grand. Yeah, and then it kind of transforms into this acoustic guitar. You hear the birds chirping. Sound, yeah, and I think the acoustic guitar sits pretty well with the rest of the track. And then it has this like Pink Floyd ending, and then it returns to form. It just feels like a journey of a track. I think is what uh, pretty cool. You're holding on so tight. That you don't even try And if I had a dream I don't always like tracks that do this, but some of my favorite songs of all time have... Sections like... Sec- yeah, beginning, middles, and ends. I think of Band on the Run is a great example that, you know, has two very distinct sections that feel like, you know, one of them is, is a straight-up acid trip and the mm-hmm. other one is a is a just totally different experience, but it's part of the same story. Yeah, I love... Yeah, I'm a sucker for those tracks, too. Um, even tracks like Pyramids by Frank, Frank Ocean. Yeah. That. And that's, I think that track is one of the better ones of the decade. It's Absolutely. Really cool. I think the issue I have is by the end of the album, a little bit of the novelty of the retro style wears off. I think so too. I think it's just because of how long, like, it's, not, it's like 51 minutes. And I don't even think it, that's that long, but I do think that the ending tracks don't do much more than the beginning tracks that I loved. I think it all still flows nice and they're still arranged really well and all that stuff. But most of my favorite tracks were in the beginning and middle. Right. And then the end. I feel like if you, yeah, maybe could have condensed it all. But I agree that like the things that it does really well in the beginning and middle, the end, I don't think does too much different. Yeah, it it got a little monotonous towards the end to me. Just not that they were bad songs at the end by no. any means, but I think it's yeah, I agree. I feel that way with intent intentional listening, but I think you could, you know, put this on and around other people and stuff and it would still create a cool atmosphere and it wouldn't like get old to me. Yeah. But that's, um that's fair. But it still like sound it still sounds good. Yeah, I really I think I really like it a lot. I think it does a great job of pulling in some um Really cool sounds from different eras uh, that I love, but not, uh, but still having, you know, Michael Kiwanuka still having a, a singular voice and enough modern elements to um, to be refreshing. And yeah, I just think it was like we had talked about the arrangements and production elements. I think they're placed really well, and I it just kind of sounds confident. It sounds like a classic sounding album. I think I'll yeah, I'll listen to it, listen to it more, and it would be something cool to put on and i think it does a really great job at creating this sort of environment that that uh albums like what's going on by marvin gay does so wonderfully too so like the track inner city blues by marvin gay is another one where it kind of sets up and you can like kind of hear voices and you feel like uh the energy of inner city life and uh lots of tracks on here do that sort of thing which i think is is super cool. Yeah, I think it's a good album. One thing that may be a detractor is I don't know that there's any particular standout single. I think there are a lot of good tracks, but as far as radio play goes, well, I think the first maybe one, the first track is the closest. And the music video for that is pretty sweet. 
a lot of uh, primary colors, a lot of dancing, just a lot. It's just vibrant and fun. It's all outdoors. Um, it's a good video, but. And then, yeah, you mentioned that it's a little bit on the long side. Not that not that 52 Minutes is the longest album in the world or anything, but because I think, especially towards the back half, a lot of it sounds similar to the earlier stuff. Mm-hmm. It kind of wears on you. I could have done without some of the intro tracks or maybe even a little more condensed version of some of the, the intros or the interludes. But the, but the interludes. good thing about those is you can go back and listen to the actual track without them being like, six minutes tracks right like you can you don't have to listen to the intro <laughs> i i get why you split those up instead of having you know six and a half minute tracks it's right they're four and a half minutes with a two minute intro or whatever but yeah so but yeah good album i'm a fan i'll listen to his next thing probably yeah. i don't know Not- you should I, I would love to go back and listen to the previous one i think there's going to be some similarities um but i just didn't give it as much of a chance as i should have so yeah we can both do that too if you like bands like pink floyd or like this retro soul sound with motown artists and people like marvin gay as well as some of the rock elements people like Jimi hendrix then i think you should give this a try or a, a shot and see what see what you think for sure i think there's definitely elements that you'll be drawn to kiwanuka is streaming at all of the streaming places so go stream it go do it Thank you for listening to Happy Tears. Happy Tears is produced by Nick Melita and Brandon Henry. You can find us on Instagram at Happy Tears Podcast, as well as on Facebook. Our page is Happy Tears Podcast. You can find more information as well as this episode's show notes at happytearspod.com. That's where you can also find the voicemail link to leave us a message. We always love hearing from the listeners about things we need to cover and answering our listener questions. This week's question is, what song from a movie is guaranteed to bring you happy tears? Or a great example of when the music in a film really moved you to tears. Yep. Original music by Homage. You can find his music at youtube.com slash Homage Beats. We have a little Spotify playlist uh, called Happy Tears Mixtape, where we throw on some music that we talk about on this podcast, either that we cover during the podcast or that we recommend at the beginning. Uh, We think you'll enjoy that, so go check it out. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That's pretty much... You can also follow us on Spotify Podcasts if that's how you uh, consume your pods. But those five-star ratings are huge for us in growing our... Audience. Audience. Thank you. So do it. (laughs) Please. That's all we've got this week. Uh, I'm Brandon. And I'm Nick. (laughs) 